Well, I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, for bringing us together by your grace. I pray as we study and look through your word, you'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear the wonderful truth of your holy law. And let us meditate on that holy law daily. Let us praise you for that holy law. For it was that law that revealed to us our sin, our depravity, who you are, what Christ has done. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, we are now on number 92, almost finished in the essential of the Christian faith. We are talking about the threefold use of the law this morning, or this evening. We are living in a day where... We all have a love-slash-hate relationship with the law, don't we? I mean, don't get me wrong, we love what the law does. Police protect and serve the community as best as they can. Judges execute justice to felons, criminals, according to the laws of the land. When something happens to us in our lives, we expect justice to be served and for the law to be upheld. It does seem like we love the law when the law is good to us. When we want the law to do something for us, then we want justice to be served and we want the law to be upheld. On the flip side, however, most of us hate the law. For example, we hate that the law says that we must stay within a certain speed limit. And if we don't stay within that certain speed limit, then the law says... We will be fined. I always find it fascinating how when you drive to L.A. and you're in the carpool lane, well, if you pass that carpool lane, you're going to owe about $400-$500. What justification do you have for passing a line? And you say, passing this line, you have to pay X amount of dollars. Where do you get 400 from? Where do you get 500 from? I remember my brother telling me that before. We hate the fact that some people who are in the position of authority use the law to beat people up with it. And we've seen in the past months as cops have abused their power, leading to senseless arrests and senseless deaths. We hate the law, most of us, when we get caught by the law. And then we have to come under the law. Then the law is then applied to us. We sort of have that relationship, or Christians have that relationship, when it comes to God's law. We have a love-hate relationship with God's law because, frankly, we don't understand God's law. We understand God's law in an Old Testament sense, but we don't understand God's law in a New Testament sense. What the law of God means, how the law of God should be viewed in our lives. For the past two weeks, we've been taking a careful examination of the law. And we've seen the errors and dangers that some can fall into. And usually people fall into two camps, two categories. You have antinomianism, right? And you have nomianism, or we can call it legalism. Now, antinomianism, to review, is the belief that God's law is not the standard for Christian living. 
If one who holds to antinomianism believes that the moral law of God is no longer binding on all peoples. More specifically, believers who are members of the new covenant. The second is legalism, which one believes that we must obey and perform and keep the law of God in order for to stay saved and in order to for salvation. And as Pastor John did a wonderful job explaining the errors of these two positions and where these positions will lead to. The question now arises, what does God's law have on us today? What, what use of God's law is for the Christians today? How is the Old Testament law related to my life? And, and is the Old Testament law even irrelevant for my life? The topic of God's law has been a raging debate, if you don't know, amongst Christians and even people who are in the Reformed camp. It's been such a hot topic, a hot button to press. But we've learned in the past two weeks about the extremes of antinomianism and legalism. There's another extreme, which is named theonomy, which says that God's law in Scripture, specifically the laws that were given to three Ecratic Israel, should be legislated in our land today, including also the punishments of the 613 law of Moses. We have people who are in the Federal Vision camp, who says that one is justified before God by grace, but also by the deeds of obedience to the law. And then we have others who are part of the New Covenant theology, who hold to some sort of the law, that the law is no longer binding, no moral law, no ceremonial law, no law at all. So what do we do with the law then? We must ask ourselves, is there a middle ground that one could hold with all these extremes out there? And indeed, there is. There is a middle ground. God's law, if you do not know, is not done away with. Some aspects of the law, such as the laws that were given to Israel to set them apart as God's people, are done away with by Jesus Christ coming, fulfilling the moral law and fulfilling the ceremonial law and the civil law on our behalf. But the moral law of God is still binding on all humans and as Pastor John Riley has been saying for the past two weeks, to review the moral law of God is summarized for us in Scripture. We see this moral law first given in Exodus 20, and then in Deuteronomy 5. And then it's reiterated in Matthew 22:37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law. The moral law of God never changes. The moral law of God was never done away with. It was given in creation at first. It was reaffirmed under Noah. Then it was expressed in typological and national terms under Moses and David and the prophets. And then it was reaffirmed in the New Testament by our Lord Jesus and the apostles. So tonight we will look at the three uses of the moral law. What are the benefits? How should we view the moral law? In layman's terms, we can classify these three, the three functions of the moral law like this. Ruin, to restrain, and to rule. Or if you don't like that one, you can say the three functions of the law functions as a mirror, a muzzle, or a map. Let's get let's 
look at the first use of the law. So the first function of the law, as John has been saying for the past two weeks, is to be described as a mirror, is to be described as a tutor or a schoolmaster. The law reflects the righteousness of God. It reflects his otherness. It reflects who he is, his perfection, his purity. As we look into that mirror, we see God for who he is. We see the standard that God has set before all mankind, a standard that it's unattainable. We, could have, we couldn't even imagine living a life obeying God's law every single day without messing up because that mirror also reflects who we are. We see a picture of who God is as we're looking at the mirror, but we also see our sinfulness and our shortcomings when we look at that mirror. We see how we don't live up to God's standards. We see how we couldn't go on a life obeying God's law to the perfect T without messing up. It is then when the law is presented to you, when you are looking at the holiness of God, the perfection of God and gazing on who he is, then you will see yourself. You will see yourself as a depraved sinner who has tried his hardest to obey and complete the law, but is always coming up short. That is, then we must ask ourselves, what must I do in order to obey God's holy law? As Augustine wrote, the law binds us as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it to know how to ask the help of grace. Augustine's right. We look at the law and we see the law as binding us. And we try to fulfill its requirements, but it only makes us weak and wearied until we are driven to our knees and asking for help. This is where Jesus Christ comes into the picture. This is where Jesus Christ shines like the diamond that he is. The law reveals to us our sin while exposing our need for repentance. The law reveals to us our depravity while showing us our need of a pardon. The law drives us to the mercy seat of Christ, asking for forgiveness, for even thinking we could obey God's holy law on our own. Asking for forgiveness for falling short of obeying God and being an arrogant sinner, thinking that we could do all of this ourselves. As Paul rightly put it in Galatians 3, 19 through 24, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not only is not only is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And then what a emphatic statement may it never be for if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And then thank God for verses 23 and 24. But before faith came, we, saints, the, un, the regenerate people, we were kept in custody under the law being shut up by faith, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified 
not by the law, but by faith. The first use of the law mainly applies to unbelievers, but it also applies to believers as well. The first use of the law is to drive hopeless, helpless sinners to the mercy seat of God, pleading for repentance and faith in the one who has fulfilled the law on our behalf. A believer cannot be under the law in its first use like an unbeliever is. Because Paul says in Romans 6, 6, 14 through 15, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. Bonhoeffer will call that cheap grace. And in Romans eleven six. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. We, as regenerate, baptized believers, are no longer under the covenant of works, which is the law. But we are now in the new covenant, the covenant of grace. Those who are not saved are simply put under the law. And those who are saved receive unconditional acceptance by God on the basis of Jesus Christ's law-keeping for all of his people. Dr. Scott Clark says this, So in this use, the first use, the law is a taskmaster, a harsh teacher with a ruler or a switch that beats us sinners when we transgress. This is the expression of God's holy, relentless, righteous justice that must be satisfied either by ourselves or by another. God's law threatens death for all those who transgress. Genesis 2.17, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the first use of the law reveals to unbelievers their sinfulness. It reveals to them the holiness of God and it leads them to faith in Christ. But on the other hand, it's for us believers as well. Because the law reveals to us that we are still sinners in need of conditional repentance, continual repentance, forgiveness, and Christ's provision. It was this law that drove you to Christ. It was this law that revealed to you who you were and who God is. And your need for a substitute. Your need for someone to come on your behalf and obey the law that you cannot keep. Now let's look at the second use of the law. The second function of the law is known as the, the civil use. And this function of the law is to restrain evil. Okay? Dr. Van Drumen put the civil use in a practical way, and it was so good, I copied the whole thing. He said, do you appreciate being able to walk out your door in safety each morning to pursue your gainful employment? Then you should be thankful for the civil use of the law. What if your neighbor did serious damage to your property? And you sought restitution. Or what if you were wrongly accused of a crime and faced decades in jail if convicted? You would certainly be concerned about the efficiency of the legal system and whether your judge or jury had a sense of justice. And this has everything to do with the use, the civil use of the law. But perhaps you are tempted to think that these are merely mundane matters that shouldn't be important to us. In this case, ask yourself whether you are grateful to be able to carry your own Bible or to gather peacefully for worship on Sundays without being 
threatened or being arrested. Once more, the civil use is at work. The civil use may not directly involve the bestowal of saving blessings in Christ, but God wonderfully gives it an indirect role in promoting gospel proclamation and saving sinners. The civil use of the law is God's generosity in restraining evil and unrighteousness. If you don't know by now, you're not as bad as you could be. Everyone knows God's moral law. Everyone has a basic knowledge of God's law because God has written it on their hearts and on their conscience. Paul tells us that in Romans 2, 14 through 15. For when Gentiles, we do not have the law, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts excuse, accuse or even excuse them. This is our greatest weapon when we do evangelism, and especially when it comes to defending the faith. It's not by accident that people know that murder is wrong. It's not by accident that people know that stealing is wrong or adultery is wrong. We don't need this, the, the magistrate or we don't need the government to tell us those things because God has written on our hearts and our conscience. The Apostle Paul says also that the moral law has been known from creation. Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And all things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Even the people who are in the remote jungles and villages understand, know that there is a God. But what do they do? Like Paul says, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The civil law also reveals to us God's common grace to all of mankind. God not only protects his elect, you, but he also protects unrighteous sinners who rebel against him every day. This is the common grace of God. God restrains evil men from being as evil as they could be. And he restrains his own people through warnings and chastising to keep us further from sin. But every so often, God will pull back the veil and he'll take his hand, his common grace off a particular person and he'll show the world how evil one man can be. We've seen that in Hitler and we see that in Stalin and in various dictators who have killed millions of their own people. This is the civil use of the, of the law of God. Let us be thankful that God suppresses man's evil desires and their wicked ways. But also the civil law reminds us that we must pray for those who are in authority. We must pray that they will uphold God's standard and righteous judge, judgment. We should pray for the cities in which we live, and especially for our civil government, as wicked as they seem to be. But they are the ones who God has placed in authority and given them the special task to enforce the righteous civil laws. Now let's look at the third use of the law. The first use 
was to reveal to us our sin. It was to reveal to us who God is. The second use was for us to see God and his goodness, that he restrains man's evil and, and the common grace that he gives to all of mankind. Now, the third use of the law. This law functions as a map of how one should live the Christian life. We can also say that it functions like a rule for the Christian because we are coming under the rule of God's law and under his authority. John Calvin would say that the third use is the chief use for the Christian. The reformers taught that we are justified that we might be sanctified. We were saved so that we might be like him. We're justified in order that we might desire to obey God's holy law from a heart out of gratitude and adoration. The law of God is good. Unlike the laws of our land that might seem corrupt, there is no corruption in God's law. But a lot of times, Christians who fall into the camps of the antinomianism extreme reject the idea that the law is of any use for the Christian life. They reject the idea that the believers are under the law as a norm for Christian behavior. But we are under the law. We're still under the moral law of God. The law is good. And I think they fail to see that the law is holy. Again, Dr. Scott Clark says concerning the law, In Christ, the tares of the law have been satisfied for us by Christ. Righteousness And now we live in union with Christ by the spirit under grace. The law is a gift to us and the spirit does use it to sanctify us. The law is a gift to us. The law is a gift to us believers. When we were outside of Christ, when we were not saved, when our federal head was Adam, the law was a nightmare to us. Because the law can only bring condemnation. The law can can only bring judgment and it bound us up kept shackles on us we hated the law of God and even if we tried to obey it our motivation to obey the law of God was for selfish reasons I can do this I can can obey God's law you obey the law because you had to obey the law but now that you are saved now that you are in Christ You want to obey God's law. And now your motivation is to please God. This is what the third use of the law is all about. It reveals to us what pleases God. R.C. Sproul said, as born again, children of God, the law enlightens us to what is pleasing to our Father whom we serve. We delight in the law of God. Because What delights God is when we obey the law of God. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. The reason why the law is now our aid and not our enemy is because the gospel has transformed our relationship to it. Our sins are forgiven. We are no longer under the law that brings condemnation and bondage. But now the law of God is our delight and our joy, and we take pleasure in it. God's Spirit is now within us, empowering us, giving us new hearts to obey and keep the law in a manner that genuinely pleases the Father. 
The psalmist says in Psalm 119, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established keep to keep your statutes. Then I will not be ashamed. When I look upon all your commandments, I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I shall keep your statutes. Let that be our prayer. Let that be our meditation as we come and, and we learn about the holy law of God. And let us say, like the psalmist says in verse 19, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. To simplify it as we close, if you are unregenerate believer, if you are not in Christ, if you are not saved, if you do not have the spirit in you, then the law is bondage. The law can only cause you and keep you to sin. But if you are a regenerate believer, you have the spirit in you, which enables you to want to obey God's law and to find joy and delight in obeying God's law. Yes, you will not obey God's law perfectly, but you do have now a desire to please God in which you did not have before. The law of God is good, unlike the laws of our land, because it is a reflection of who God is. And it is also God's requirement for all those who believe. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for revealing to us your holiness by the means of your law. Revealing to us your purity and and what you require from us by means of the law. And I pray, Lord, that we don't become so legalistic when we beat people up, when we see that they're not obeying the law, and when we beat ourselves up seeing that we are not upholding the law. But may we drive us to the mercy seat of Christ, knowing that the law has already been fulfilled by you. And now we take the light in that law. Let us use this as we evangelize and talk to our unbelieving friends and, and co-workers and people who we don't know. That you are under the law and you will be judged under the law. But there is one that has come that has fulfilled the law on the behalf of those who will believe. I thank you for this time. May grace be with your people. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.